0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Michael Spavor has been sentenced by a Chinese court to 11 years in prison in a spying case linked to the arrest of Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou. Is it over for Spavor or just one more step in that fight? The Ontario government continues to face calls to mandate vaccinations as infections rise, but the government is not budging. How do they propose to keep the province safe without heading us back into a lockdown? And New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has announced his resignation over a barrage of sexual harassment allegations, but even after he resigned, he maintains that the accusations are false. Does he get what he did was wrong? We'll talk about it. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As you've heard on the news all morning long, a day after a Chinese court upheld a death sentence for convicted drug smuggler, they say convicted drug smuggler Robert Schellenberg, another Canadian, Michael Spavor, who was taken into custody on December of 2018, has now been sentenced to 11 years in prison in a spying case. Here's Global's Tina Trujani with details. Although Chinese officials deny there's a direct link to the arrest of Meng Wanzhou, they have repeatedly demanded her release. Canada's ambassador to China, Dominic Barton, says he's disappointed with the sentence.
1: You know, 11 years is a long time, and, uh, and that's again
2: why we're going to have to just continue to work very, very hard to get him out and certainly
3: a lot earlier than that
0: he says spavor is resilient and in good spirits the prime minister justin trudeau has put out a statement it reads in part the conviction and sentencing of michael spavor is absolutely unacceptable and unjust he goes on to say our top priority remains securing spavor's and michael kovrig's immediate release and to bring them home as soon as possible tina twerjani global news well, notwithstanding, as Tina Trojan, he just mentioned that report that the Chinese government said there's no connection between what's going on with the two Michaels uh, and with Mr. Schellenberg uh, with the Meng case uh, that's going on in Vancouver right now. Uh, I think it's it's pretty easy to connect some dots here. Stephen Chase is a senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail. He has written extensively about uh, the case with the two Michaels and Canada-Chinese relations, and he uh, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Stephen, good morning. Good to have you back in the program today.
1: Yeah, good morning. Thanks for
3: having me.
0: Uh, no surprise by, uh, I guess, what happened, uh, and I guess we shouldn't be surprised that there seems to be a flurry of activity uh, with the Canadians who are incarcerated right now, uh, which coincides, uh, I guess, not surprisingly, with what's going on in Vancouver right now, as we're told that that hearing into, to Hmong's case is starting to wind down now.
1: Absolutely. there. Um, it's in the final phases of the hearing, and, and I don't think there's anybody uh, who watches China who, who doesn't believe this is related and this is in fact a message to the Canadian government uh, and that uh, you know we can still inflict harm on you and uh, keep that in mind as your justice system uh, considers the fate of our uh, of the Huawei executive
0: let me ask you about uh, uh, well, one particular part of the sentencing announcement that we saw yesterday that I found was rather interesting uh, he, as we mentioned and as we mentioned in our reporting here uh, here's Mike spabor's sentenced to eleven years in prison uh, also ordered to be deported. Uh, and now there's some question as to when that would actually happen. Some are suggesting it won't be until after he serves us 11 years. We don't know that t- to be a fact yet. But it's by including that, Stephen, again, i got kind of the impression that the government's Chinese government is basically saying, "What are you guys going to do about this?"
1: Yeah. Well, I think the de- deportation would happen after the sentence. It would basically, uh, I guess, the uh, the impression or the argument would be that's a final insult. You're we're shutting the doors st- to the Middle Kingdom to you, and you're never to come back. So. Uh, yeah, I think I think Mr. Spavor is probably more worried about the 11 years than not going back to China.
0: But is this a, a leaving a door open situation here where the, the government can say, uh, uh, okay, you know, we, we'll deport him next week, if in fact there's something favorable no. coming from no, the Canadian well, government? I,
1: I, I do think that, that there is the Chinese government has been hoping for some kind of grand bargain, yeah. where the United States... Uh, of course, this all began because the United States... Um, uh, issued an arrest warrant uh, for the extradition of Meng Wanzhou, the uh, chief financial officer of Huawei, the company that makes smartphones and stuff like that. And she uh, she was uh, apprehended on the Canadian soil. So the, Canadian, the Chinese government has been very clear that they want her home. The only way to do that, of course, is for the Americans to drop the extradition case against her or something like that. Uh, and Canada has been campaigning in Washington to try to convince the Americans to do that. So as part of a grand bargain, there's still room for all these men to come home in some kind of swap or prisoner swap or ordeal. But uh, the Americans have shown no interest in doing that, uh, despite uh, entreaties from our government. So uh, Mr. Spavor's fate is not sealed yet. Mr. Spavor's fate can still be decided uh, in the weeks and months to come. The only uh, thing is is that Canada will not free her unilaterally. Uh, They want the Americans to uh, withdraw the warrant. So, uh it's 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 um it, it's all dep- it all depends on washington
0: oh and the other option in in the vancouver situation is uh you know the, the the judge could in that particular case rule that there's no merit to this and and said that she's not going to be extradited uh Absolutely. but i'm not it's, so sure that i'm not so sure that's a victory for the chinese though is it in other words uh, she still went through the process
1: a, it would definitely be a victory but the threshold for what constitutes um Grounds for extradition is so low in Canada that she's sure to fail, that she's sure to, uh, it's unlikely she's going to succeed. I mean, uh, it's very easy to get someone extradited. and So no one holds out a lot of prospects that the court will simply let her go by determining that in the judicial process.
0: Yeah, one of the strongest elements of, of extradition, I guess, is whether or not the person's life would be in peril. I mean, I know that the Canadian government has acted in that regard in the past with people that would have faced the death penalty back home, uh, but that's certainly not a, a factor here in the Hmong case, is it?
1: No. No, she's a pr- she's a, a prince, uh, like a, a Chinese royalty, effectively. So.
0: <laughs> With the work you've done on this and the research, you've seen a lot of the comments on social media and even, I think, some of the people that are involved in these discussions and negotiations, Stephen. If, if they were to put Hmong on a plane today for, and, and say, off to Beijing, you go, we're, we're finished with this, does that end this? Does that free the three Canadians in particular that we're talking about here, or is there more to this? Well,
1: not necessarily, because China will not want to admit that it's a simple tit-for-tat. China has, re, has refused to connect the dots publicly, so there could still be uh, there could still be a, a limbo period where they might rot in jail for, for years before they're let home. So no, uh, that's why that's the that's been the argument for some kind of prisoner swap deal uh, because we can't rely on the Chinese to simply uh, you know pivot and and hand them all back. So and of course the Canadian government has resisted this whole idea because uh, they don't want to make it open season on kidnapping Canadians to. Uh, to force uh, the government's hand on foreign policy,
0: I mean there are so many people here that, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, are looking for a grand gesture here, not not unlike what happened with North Korea, I guess, not a number of years ago, when uh, former President Bill Clinton went over there to try to uh, access uh, Americans that were being held, anyway, or Dennis Rodman. I guess you can say neither one of them, but uh, that that's that's not even in the cards with the Chinese government, I would think.
1: No, and again, it's 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 purely in sort of. Anthony Blinken, for, uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken's court. It, it's not. It's not anything we have any control over because Trudeau has ruled out the idea of a unilaterally caving on this. Uh, I mean, I, obviously he could change his mind, but he's made it pretty clear, and uh, there's no signs of backing down. They want the Americans to do this so that they're not seen as interfering in the justice system in Canada, uh, which is something they were on the hook for in the SNC Lavalin case, where uh, they were accused of interfering in the justice system. So they have a bit of a a stake in making sure that that's not seen to be the case in subsequent, uh, you know, incidents. Are, are you
0: surprised that the Biden administration is continuing that uh, with the extradition hearing? And th- there seemed to be some speculation uh, before the U.S. election last November that uh, if there were a change in government, maybe this thing would go away. But y- your point's well taken. Blinken has made it pretty clear that they're, that they're going to, they're steadfast in this desire here.
1: Well, um, if you think about it from their point of view, and, and I'm, there's no need to be sympathetic to their point of view, but they don't, it probably they don't see any kind of self interest in doing that. Why would they spend political capital or to, uh, do something for China in, in a case that serves them no in, so serves uh, you know doesn't serve their ends? So I imagine if, if they the Michaels, the Michael Culvick and Michael Spavor cases were ranked in the list of U.S. priorities with regard to China, they're probably number two hundred and forty, right? So they're not high up on the Americans' list of to do. And they're not something that they want to necessarily spend capital on. So, uh, again, I'm not excusing that. I'm just saying that that probably explains this. Uh,
0: Notwithstanding the fact that every time there's a conversation between President Biden and the Prime Minister, invariably we're told that this topic comes up and that the United States is supportive. I think that's the phrase we hear an awful lot of the time. Uh, It's easy to be supportive. It's, It's another thing altogether, I guess, to take action on something like this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's been a slew of cases in which the Americans haven't really done anything for us. Keystone, uh, Line 5, and this. So, yeah, it it must be pretty pretty frustrating to be a Canadian government official talking to
0: Washington. So where does this go? I mean, we're waiting for the other sentencing, of course. uh, A a Spavor sentence for 11 years today, and of course, uh, the Kovrig. We don't know when that's going to come down, but I would imagine that's going to be shortly, too, would you think?
3: I, I
1: don't have any insight into that. Um, I mean, it's a very good question. Uh, you know, they, th- this is designed to send a message as the Meng Wong case uh, winds down. Of course, it doesn't mean that Ms. Meng's fate is going to be decided in a few months. She'll be able to appeal any kind of extradition decision uh, for years. But I think that the- it seems that they're holding out Culbrigg for a later, uh, a- as a possible uh, next step, or to-, to further tighten the screws. Uh, you know, we're in the realm of speculation now. Um, could Mr. Kovrig's case, could he be treated more harshly? Is, is, is this a taste of what they have, but they're going to even, uh, stick it to him more as an effort to sort of, uh, continue inflicting the pain on Canada? We don't know.
0: Well, especially in light of what happened uh, yesterday, of course, so, you know, with the, that particular case with Schellenberg. I mean, he was uh, essentially uh, uh, convicted and ch- sentenced to, what was it, 15 years? And then they basically decided, no, we want to relook at this. And that's, that's where the death sentence thing came in. So uh, uh, we don't know that this is over yet, even with Spavor, I guess, at this stage, do we?
1: No. In fact, you know, I, I guess any of them, uh, Mr., Mr. Schellenberg's case still has to be reviewed by the Supreme People's Court. Mr. Spavor can appeal, and that could take a long time. So, this is all up in the air. Uh, the Chinese are still holding out hope of some kind of, uh, uh, of some kind of, uh, you know, of, uh, Canada or the U.S. Uh, caving. Uh, in case of this case, the U.S. And uh, so, no, this could, this is, this is just the next step in a long drawn-out uh, case of course of diplomacy on the behalf of the Chinese.
0: Uh, the cries are already out after the discussion and the and the announcement about uh, Spavor's uh, sentencing yesterday, saying why isn't the, the prime minister and for that matter why isn't the government doing anything? What what tools or diplomatic tools I suppose even Stephen do they have at their at their disposal right now? What can they do?
1: I think there are always lots of things they can do, but is it what do they wish to do? I mean they could uh, impose sanctions on Chinese products, but. Uh, that would hurt uh, Canadian customers, and then there'd be retaliatory sanctions. So many of the avenues of uh, China's made it very clear that it will it, it takes a very tit for tat approach to anything you do. So any sort of punitive actions we take uh, would be would be met with uh, a, a retaliatory actions. And of course, we're in a sort of post pandemic, uh, mid pandemic uh, economy where we need all the business and all the trade we can get. So. I think there's very few things left for them to do except uh, plead with Washington to uh, to come to their aid.
0: The other element of that too is uh, when Chinese government goes tit for tat, uh, their their response that tat uh, is usually a magnified response, uh, you know, much greater than than you know what they consider to be the initial e- egregious error against them. Uh, and we've seen that yeah. happen with the two Michaels in particular, haven't we?
1: Yeah, except, you know, it's interesting with the hostage-taking. There's been a 30-year history of this with China, and usually they get results. So what is extraordinary is that Canada has not simply caved and handed them over. They have done this with Japan, with the Philippines, with other countries, and they normally get results. So that is a bit of a deviation from the record. I I saw a study on this, uh, and so it's kind of interesting that Canada has not caved, uh, whereas most countries do eventually.
0: Well, the numbers are staggering. I mean, we've talked about the two Michaels and, and Mr. Schellenberg, of course, but uh, as, as you've been reporting, there are over 200 Canadians uh, that are incarcerated in various degrees in in, in China right now. Hussein uh, Jalil, of course, uh, his family is residing in Burlington. Uh, it's been, what, yeah. 11, 12 years, I think, since he's been incarcerated. Uh, yeah. And again, those were trumped-up charges. He was essentially kidnapped and brought to trial. Uh, and we're seeing the same sort of thing here, too. So I understand the frustration the Canadian government is feeling right now, but your point's well taken. And economic sanctions aren't going to work against the Chinese because they're just going to retaliate right back. And we already know from yeah. our dealings with Donald Trump, I guess, over the last four years that, that, that you know tariffs and, and trade sanctions don't usually work because there's always a retaliation there too.
1: You've raised another really interesting point, which is we've been focusing on the plight of two white guys from Canada who obviously are totally unjustly imprisoned. But there are many other people, uh, many other Canadians who are not Caucasian who have been rotting away in jail uh, on really spurious charges for years. And I know that the, the Uyghur Canadian uh, activists have complained about that, that Michael Spavor gets a lot more ink than um, Hussein Chalil, for instance, uh, Who, who, who uh, want, and many of these cases are different degrees of, of, um, of, an, of, of alleged injustice. But we, we tend to focus on the Michaels when there's a lot of other people who uh, who happen to be, for instance, Chinese-Canadian or one of the other ethnic uh, groupings in China uh, who are also suffering from what are clearly uh, unfair charges
0: are other countries, you mentioned about uh, some of the other countries, Japan and others, that, that have had citizens that are in similar situations like that. Uh, would an, an international response be a, an effective tool here? I, I I know that there was some talk about G7 nations or NATO nations banding together on this, but those are just more voices. And the, the Chinese have, have kind of seen that before, haven't they, without much response? They
1: don't like that, though. They were yeah. the, the Chinese government was really angry uh, at the coalition of, Western countries that spoke up in defense of and uh, support of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, uh, and it really seemed to drive the Chinese nuts. They do not like that kind of. They are seeking the Chinese Communist Party, which has ruled the country for uh, you know more than seventy years uh, with an iron fist, is seeking legitimacy in the world and is seeking to rearrange the world order to suit its its uh, to suit its purposes. And it really they really do not like it when they get condemned. So. We may think they're just words on paper, but they actually do. uh, That coalition really ticked them off and really, I think, had an impact. So uh, I'm talking, of course, about the European Mm -hmm. nations uh, as well as Australia and others who spoke up and have 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 repeatedly um, spoken up in defense of. And of course, in in China right now, foreign diplomats are showing up outside the courts for both these men to. uh, It's quite an extraordinary sight. You see these a crowd of uh, foreign diplomats coming to sort of canada's aid there and again i think this is more effective than we think
0: well we'll see what the next steps are and certainly what the response is going to be and watch for your reporting on this in uh, the globe and mail Stephen. as always thank you so much for the time great talking with you again today you're welcome take care take care Stephen chase a senior parliamentary reporter with the globe and mail following uh, the plight of the uh, the two michaels and others uh, as he mentioned and we n- can't forget about the others as well very much still part of that story <laughs> You're listening to
2: the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900
0: CHML. The discussion, debate, argument, I suppose, about uh, proof of vaccination continues here in the province of Ontario. Uh, yesterday, uh, Health Minister Christine Elliott was in uh, Collingwood, Ontario, up, uh, making a funding announcement. But uh, when asked about these two different scenarios, first of all, about mandated vaccines and others, uh, she pretty much held the uh, the government's line here, uh, offering firm opposition to requiring both health care workers to be vaccinated or even imposing vaccine cert- certification or passport system. Here's what she had to say. The vast majority of cases, it's people who are not vaccinated. So I think that it, it speaks for itself, the, uh, the need for people to be vaccinated to, uh, to protect themselves yeah okay we agree with that to a point but the problem is is that you know we know that the the number of people getting vaccinated especially the second vaccine is starting to fall off considerably and there are more and more new cases so is there a valid argument uh for proof of vaccination and uh, mandatory vaccination in some circles i want to bring andrew uh, McDougal into the conversation andrew is a professor of political science at the university of toronto uh professor always a pleasure thanks so much for joining us again today oh it's a pleasure I, I, as I listen to the health minister, and of course, some of the comments the premiers made over the last couple of days, too, and I'm, I'm juxtaposing that with the numbers we're seeing about new COVID cases. And the majority of them, I think 85 percent, they said, are people that aren't vaccinated. Uh, I'm getting the sense that the policy that the Ford government seems to be hanging on to here is a lot more politically driven than it is based on science.
2: Yeah, this is a very risky position that they're taking, but it's one that I think they've decided uh, they're going to go with uh, with their base. But it's not clear that it's going to work. But I think it's also complicated, not just for the Conservatives, it's really complicated for all of the parties, because this is a question that can be quite cross-cutting for a lot of people. It brings up a lot of questions about individual rights, about whether or not, you know, you're going to have, um, you know, uh, medicine administered to you. At the same time, you're weighing off, you know, society's interests and having high vaccination rates. So all the parties, I think, to a degree, have sort of struggled a little bit with this one. Um, we saw this again with the NDP. We saw this with uh, with the Conservatives. Um, the the argument, of course, here is that it should be mandated for education and healthcare workers, and it's likely that a lot of people are going to see that as being very, very reasonable. Um, but I think the Conservatives have taken a look at their base and have decided that for the moment they're going to try to give people the option to uh, to um, Uh, get vaccinated while encouraging it. Whether or not that works politically, though, there's no guarantee of that. And We're going to have to see uh, in the coming days and weeks whether or not that proves to be a politically tenable position. A lot of people would be very upset about that.
0: Yeah, I think so. And and your points well taken. I mean, we're really talking about two separate issues here. The mandatory vaccination is is very controversial. And it's not just Doug Ford and others that are in this province are shying away from that, uh, because there could, as you mentioned, well be some constitutional issues at play here. Although, for workers like you know educators and and healthcare workers, there's a pretty strong argument to be made. But the, I guess the the way around that is is the other controversial stuff, though, professor, and that being, okay, you've chosen, sir or madam, not to get vaccinated. Okay, that's your choice. I'm not going to force you. But you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. You can't go into a restaurant. You can't go to a football game. You can't do anything unless you have proof of vaccination. So if that's going to be your choice, then these are going to be the consequences. Uh, and other provinces have adopted that. I don't I know if, if you're a football fan. I mean, we watched the the opening game of the CFL last week out in Winnipeg. Uh, what was it, uh, 35,000 people, all of them. With proof of vaccination and i know that uh, when you know premier pallister uh, imposed that a couple of weeks ago there was a lot of pushback but they seem to have said okay those are the rules we're going to abide by them if we want to do this would we get the same reaction if doug ford were to reverse and say okay let's do that in ontario now
2: yeah, I mean, I think the point you're making there is, is is absolutely accurate. That all jurisdictions here are wrestling with these issues, and they're all trying to find different paths. And so, it's a really interesting time because we're seeing a lot of different proposals that are being tried out. We're going to be able to see how how some of those work. I mean, Quebec has, has recently brought out its vaccine passport, uh, you know, as well for some areas. Ontario hasn't quite gone down that road yet. The federal government is talking a little bit about maybe uh, mandating, um, you know, vaccines for people who work there. How those go over, I think, there was still a really big uh, political question, as you point out. There's a lot of people on both sides of this issue, and it's not totally clear who is ultimately going to to, to win this win this argument. But I think there is a lot of force, uh, you know, behind this this argument, as you point out, that if you've selected a uh, you know a job like being a healthcare worker, you know, which really does seem uh, like it would require you to be open to something like a, a vaccine. Uh, you know, you may not be forced to take the vaccine, but you won't be allowed to to operate in a setting like that. And I think there's been a little bit of a consensus uh, around that idea that's sort of formed. But nobody's really gone, uh, you know, all the way to the end quite with this one as they're watching as they're watching the politics play out.
0: And, and as for the, and, and that's the again, you know, the mandatory vaccinations, and I, I can understand that. But if uh, they adopt, as you say, what Quebec has already adopted, September first, it goes into play in the province of Quebec, where essentially people that choose not to get vaccinated are going to be restricted as to where they can go, or that they can dine indoors, things of that nature. Uh, I I, I'm, I get the sense of where the premier here is coming from, and I guess for that matter, Jason Kenney in Alberta, they, they seem to be kindred spirits when it comes to this sort of thing, and it's 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 really kind of adhering to that conservative philosophy of. You know, we don't want government to get in the face of the people, but doesn't that whole concept, though, professor, run contrary to the concept of public health?
2: Yeah, to a certain degree, absolutely. Uh, you know, it does, and, and you're right here that you've got sort of competing values, right? That that, and, and you know, Jason Kenney has kind of taken this position that individual liberty has to be given a space here, uh, you know, against the, uh, you know, against sometimes the interests of the community, and that can include requiring people to get. Vaccinated. Other people, of course, uh, come back and say no. I mean, this is a reasonable thing to ask people to do, especially if they're working with vulnerable people, is to go in and get two shots. You know, it's it's a very light, it's free, it's a very light. Uh, you know, burden with a lot of payoff, and it, it it should be justified that we should be able to compel people uh, to do that. So, I mean, these, these are very, very tricky issues. They're very complicated issues. I mean, one thing I think that is kind of interesting that is emerging is that there is some polling that suggests that people who are vaccinated do think that they should be entitled to a little more freedom than people who've decided not to do that. And that might be, and given the number of people, which is the overwhelming majority now, who have had at least one or two shots, that may in the end prove uh, you know, definitive, but we, at least as the politics go. But there's other things to consider. I mean, there may be court actions that come, uh, you know, against, you know, against policies to try to force people to get vaccinated. We haven't really heard a lot on uh, on that. I mean, historically, normally these sorts of requirements have not been uh, too hard to get through the courts. This seems to be fairly light. But, you know, it's it's still a conversation that's, that's ongoing. And I think most people in in power are kind of just hoping everybody or as many people as possible will just go out and get these vaccines you know on their own and it won't they won't be forced into a situation where they'll have to compel people to do it but you know we have to wait and see whether or not they can hold on to that in the long run
0: yeah the idea of the passport actually uh where it has been instituted in quebec i think is a great example france uh, with president macron a month or so ago and, and bill de blasio the mayor of new york uh with the policy very similar to what he's wanting to adopt in new york but we've seen it the day after the announcement forget about the imposition of, of that policy the day they announced they're going to do this there's a huge rush to to get vaccinated i think they in quebec they the double the number of people that were ordinarily going to be lined up for vaccines, uh, which maybe that that does serve as the motivation, then, to get more people vaccinated.
2: Yeah, I mean, it would make sense if you create the incentive strong enough, you're going to see more and more people going and and getting vaccinated. I think at this point, you know, sort of the low-hanging fruit is kind of gone. People that are really eager to go out Mm -hmm. and get vaccinated have already done so. And so now we're getting to that point where people are becoming increasingly more reluctant. And I think the sort of escalating uh, you know, sort of coercive measures is trying to sort of nudge more and more people who are kind of on the fence but are kind of open to it to just go out and do it. And then, you know, it's gonna become more and more difficult as you really start getting down to the people that really do not want to do it. Um and, and what do you and what do you do with people like that? And and that's kind of where the conversation is turning.
0: Is is there a political Win here for the, uh, a government like the Ford government or the Kenny government in Alberta, for that matter, uh, to adhere to this and simply say we're not going to do this. I mean, uh, you, some of the accusations I've seen, for instance, on some social media posts, is you're pandering to anti-vaxxers, and and there's no there's no merit in that. There's no win in that, uh, and and there may well be people in the ultra-conservative base who may feel that way, uh, but the international polling and the national polling that we've seen here in Canada uh, seems to indicate that a majority of people would prefer that. And you know we've we've talked to Perrin Beatty the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Uh, We've talked with, uh, well, Bob Young, the owner of the Tiger Cats, was on the program yesterday and said he would prefer uh, that vaccine passports were going to be used here in Ontario. But uh, I guess the concern that a lot of people are having, though, Professor, and I know you've heard this, is enforcement. I mean, you know, a a rule or a policy is only as good as enforcement. Who's going to enforce that? Is it going to have to be the the staff at a a restaurant or, you know, the the people that take your tickets at a football game? I mean, that's, that's putting a huge responsibility on, you know, people that really are not trained for that sort of thing.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. I mean, there are a lot of those open questions that are, are sort of emerging that some of these, these programs are being introduced. But I mean, you know, sort of your original point, it's not at all clear that this is going to be a winning strategy for Doug Ford. I mean, this is sort of what Christine Elliott and, and Doug Ford have gone with for now. Um, But the question that nobody, I think, really has an answer to is whether or not that's going to fly with the public. And there's a very real possibility that it won't, again, for the reasons that we've talked about, given the number of people that are already vaccinated, given the views of a lot of businesses. um, You know, they may have to backtrack on that. And if they did, I wouldn't be at all surprised. But for now, they're taking a look at their political situation. They're taking a look at the different constituencies. They've got an election that's coming up. And of course, it is, you know, a conservative government. And they've
0: decided that they're going to see if they can hold back a little on that. But that's a
2: risk. I don't think they know for sure that that's going to work, and, and we're going to have to wait and see whether or not that was the right calculation.
0: Yeah, especially. I mean, we had comments yesterday from the chief medical officer uh, suggesting that with cases going up, and if it continues, and hospitalizations uh, start to rise as they are already doing in sh- some jurisdictions, uh, he threw out the idea of the possibility of more shutdowns, and and I don't think anybody wants that. So, you, and it's it's well within any government's uh, purview, I suppose, to change their minds and say we're going to pivot and go this way. And and Ford's government has done that with a lot of other issues so uh they're saying they don't want to do this but that's today and we'll see what happens tomorrow i guess that's that's the way we have to look at it isn't it
2: yeah, yeah absolutely i mean that was a notable shift that i think a lot of people kind of picked up on i mean case numbers have been rising i mean i think most of us are sort of paying close attention to that uh, mm-hmm. and, and seeing whether or not you know as, as the fall comes and schools reopen and we all go back indoors whether or not you know we're going to see uh, the situation evolve where we all have to go through uh, another shutdown but you know, uh, Minister Elliott was talking about how, you know, really, and this was kind of the subtle nuance, was that what's really important here is the hospitalization, right? And, mm-hmm. and she started to make this discussion about, or sort of introduced this idea that she hadn't really stressed as much, that case counts really aren't as important any longer, given the level of vaccination. What they're really looking at is the healthcare system. And as long as the healthcare system isn't overwhelmed, then um, you know, we shouldn't have anywhere near you know, as much as much trouble, sort of suggesting to everybody that, you know, don't pay so much attention now to the cases because of the vaccinations, It's really about the healthcare system. And that means that we'll probably won't have the suggestion being, you know, uh, as qu- we won't be as quick to resort to a lockdown or won't have to go to a lockdown as quickly as we have maybe in the past. It was an interesting shift. But I mean, again, we've seen all of these policies at one point or another being walked back or changed or or sort of attenuated. So it really is kind of, I think, a matter of waiting to see how the situation develops to find out what's actually going to happen in the end
0: with uh, professor andrew mcdougall talking but well first of all the vaccine situation uh if i could i want to pivot just a little bit uh, to, to get your reflections on uh, well what happened today of course with the sentencing of uh, michael spavor uh for 11 years by the chinese government essentially i know it was the court system but we all well, know about the the ties between the government and, and the court system and just about everything else in china these days uh it's renewed calls now for the canadians to boycott the uh, the beijing olympics which are coming up the summer olympics uh in just a little while in fact and in the past the prime ministers basically said well that's going to be up to to the olympic organization it's not a government policy but when governments tend to boycott, it is a government policy i mean this is something that that i think a lot of people are looking at Uh, there are as you mentioned with just about everything i guess professor there are pros and cons to this do we revisit that idea of maybe just holding back our athletes as as a as a protest against what's happening with the canadians
2: I mean, I think it's interesting because this is kind of happening uh, right on the cusp of an election. And a lot of mm-hmm. this, I think, is being driven by some of the commentary that uh, you know Aaron O'Toole was sort of raising recently. yeah. Um, I mean, there's a couple of a couple of things. I mean one, it's very convenient, I think, for the conservatives to sort of raise this question now because there is still some time, and certainly it'll happen after the election happens. So uh, you know I think that conversation might have changed by the time the the Olympics actually get here. I mean, we may actually have some kind of a resolution. You know, with Meng Weizhou or whatever. So we'll have to wait and see. You know what the situation really is when that happens. But I think what's really going on here is is the Conservatives see a bit of an opening with uh, with Trudeau as being able to paint him as being very weak uh, on China and not really standing up for Canada's interests, um, and you know being able to portray. Uh, Aaron O'Toole is kind of being tough, you know, in the international sphere and really being able to show some light between him and the conserv- uh, him and the Liberals, which has been a little difficult in the context of the pandemic because everyone's been focused on how to manage that and everyone's been kind of on the same page on, on how to do that. So I think, you know, this prevents, presents an opportunity to uh, for the Conservatives to really try to say that they're going to be tough and they're going to stand up to the Chinese and, and the Liberals are not. Uh, and so I think they see a moment here to get, you know, some political points. Again, whether or not that works in the context of an election, you know, we'll have to see. But as far as they're concerned, it seems like they think they do.
0: And, and I'm looking at this from a pragmatic standpoint too. And you can make a political statement, I suppose, by saying I'd we're going to boycott. Uh, but does it do any good? I mean, you know, when, when President Jimmy Carter boycotted the, the upcoming Olympics in Moscow that year uh, in, in protest against you know the, the Russians invading Afghanistan, uh, all that really happened was the Russians won a lot more medals because there were no American athletes. And well, of course, they then they boycotted the subsequent Olympics, which were in the United States, and that just meant the Americans won a lot more medals. I mean, there's, there was no political political wind for that. Uh, you can make a statement, but who's going to pay attention if it's, if it's the Canadian team that doesn't show up?
2: Yeah, I, I, don't, I haven't seen any polling. I don't think anything has been done on whether or not Canadians sort of support this idea. So I have really no idea whether or not this is a politically popular idea or not. Um, but, you know, I mean, the Conservatives right now, I think, at least have sort of said to themselves, this is an opportunity, to, you know, because there is a lot of tension between Canada and China, where in the context of an election, it makes more sense to make these arguments now. Uh, but whether or not there's an appetite for that, whether or not that would be effective, those are sort of wider questions, and I think a lot of that, you know, won't really come to the fore until those games are a lot closer than they are now, and certainly after the next election.
0: Well, and, and there's strength in numbers, I would think, too. I mean, we know the Chinese government is sensitive to, to you know, their international reputation. Uh, if, if if the G7 nations, for instance, were to say, okay, none of us are going to the Olympics in Beijing, uh, that would make a statement. Uh, that that would have a significant impact, I guess, on the Games. Uh, and I know that, you know, many of those nations have voiced support uh, for the Canadian stance with the two Michaels and, and, and the other Canadians who are incarcerated right now. Uh, but I, I don't see any of them making that kind of a leap. I mean, I still think we're pretty much on our own here aren't
2: we uh, well I haven't uh, I mean there's been a lot of support for Canada generally in its relations with uh, with China from other Western allies but I haven't seen anything either that suggests that uh, going after the Olympics is, is something that anybody's really contemplated now so I mean uh, this may be an idea that that only you know a portion of the Canadian uh, sort of uh, public is is supportive of and, and would like to like to see happen. But again, I think at this point it seems to be more sort of politics with the domestic sphere rather than anything sort of larger than that. And it's taking place in the context of an election. And I think that it really has to be sort of seen as as sort of that kind of a uh, that kind of a, uh, a maneuver. And whether or not it sort of survives the election or whether or not there's the appetite amongst Canadians to boycott the Olympics, that's those are questions that we would have to do more research into and, and do more polling and really see what it looks like as those Olympics come up uh, before we have any clear answers on, on what that looks like.
0: I would think Mr. O'Toole's a suggestion suggesting, even considering this, it's just one of the many, I guess, uh, uh, political balloons that are going to be floated over the next couple of months, aren't they?
2: Yeah, I, I think there's going to be a lot of... Uh, um, from all the parties to, uh, of throwing up ideas and kind of, uh, they've got some sense of these things, but you know, to a degree, it always comes down to throwing spaghetti at the wall, sort of seeing what sticks. Uh, <laughs> and this, you know, the uh, the election hasn't been called yet, so I think there's a little bit of space here to try to pile a couple of these ideas and see how exactly. they take you before uh, the action
0: actually starts. Professor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. That's uh, Andrew McDougall, professor of political science at the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about, uh, well, U.S. politics in particular. To su- surprise, I guess, of nobody uh, facing allegations of sexual assault from 11 women detailed in a damning report from New York's attorney general and the prospect of being impeached, Governor Andrew Cuomo resigned yesterday state leader. Reggie Giacchini has the details. A family legacy has crumbled under New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. The best way I can help now Is if I step aside. The seat once held by his father,
2: that Cuomo himself held for nearly a decade, will be vacated in 14 days. Cuomo apologized to the women that claimed inappropriate physical contact, at times hinting what he thought was acceptable no longer was due to generational changes. The governor insists the report was an ambush and that politics has played a role, but with most lawmakers in the state gearing up to impeach him, he stepped aside. Cuomo took praise at the height of the pandemic for his guidance, which was undercut amid allegations of obscuring death numbers in nursing homes. This resignation was called for from the highest levels of the Democratic Party, including the president, but opens the question to whether Cuomo will run again when the seat opens in 2022. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington.
0: So what are the implications, uh, both uh, societal, I guess, and from a political standpoint? Uh, Pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Wayne Petrosi, a professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. Uh, Professor, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. No no real surprise, I guess, at Cuomo's announcement, although he was belligerent about it when first uh, faced with these allegations, wasn't he?
3: Yes, he was. And, you know, uh, I, I, I think that there, there's really one big takeaway from from what's happened to to Mr. Cuomo. And, and really, it, it's it's the contrast between when a political party has some sense of character in terms of what it expects of its leader and when it doesn't. In the case of Mr. Cuomo, his defiance notwithstanding, his party decided he had to go and it was clear to him he was going to lose he was going to be impeached by the lower house and he was likely going to be impeached by the upper house, both of which are controlled by the Democrats. The contrast is so startling is at the national level the Republican Party and Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Mr. Trump faced even more egregious charges of misconduct. His party stood behind him. His party didn't care about character. Mr Trump survived.
0: Simply because of the well, the Mitch McConnells and the Jim Jordans and everyone else, and, and you're right. Absolutely,
3: uh, these and, folks decided character doesn't matter, truth doesn't matter, and their leader loyal to their leader and the prospect of winning election made was far more important than abusive behavior directed at a group of subordinate females.
0: I, I'm sure that you and I and probably. Tens of thousands, if not millions of people had that very same thought process yesterday, Professor S. was sitting there making uh, his announcement and, and in some cases trying to justify that. Uh, like a lot of other people, when the Access Hollywood tape of Trump came out uh, just before that election, I thought he was sunk. I thought, you know, American people are not going to tolerate that. And, uh, well, they, they showed us a side of, I guess, of, of politics that was the, the deep, dark underbelly of it as well, uh, which is, well, I guess, why it was somewhat gratifying to see the, the way Democrats responded to the accusations against Cuomo.
3: No, absolutely. Uh, they clearly decided that there, there was merit to the charges, There was uh, the evidence was compelling, and that in good conscience they couldn't continue to hand over their loyalty to someone who had engaged in such conduct.
0: Interestingly, as I say, he was belligerent when uh, the, the attorney general's report came out and, and essentially said, look at all these accusations have merit and, and you know, we're going to proceed with this. Uh, it was almost like he, he went into Harvey Weinstein mode and simply said, look, that's just the kind of guy I am. I'm a touchy feely guy. Uh, given what's happened, not just with Trump, but with Weinstein and, and so many others, uh, you'd like to think that, that uh, Cuomo was watching and, and maybe learning from that, but apparently not
3: no i I think not it but I mean he had the the additional kind of angle he was he was trying to pitch that you know us Italians were gregarious, and you know we get into people's space and and we touch, and it's just part of our 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 cultural upbringing.
0: Yeah, and, and I don't think that's going to wash with too many people these days. And it, it just seemed rather flimsy uh, for him to actually put that out as a defense as opposed to simply you know accepting culpability here. And he really didn't accept a whole lot of culpability yesterday either, did he?
3: No, no. He ascribed it to generational changes in attitudes as opposed to his own behavior. <laughs>
0: uh, and, and again, we are going to define it to the end, I suppose. Uh Let's let's talk about his future first of all. Uh, you mentioned about the possibility of impeachment, and more than a few people in the New York Legislature uh, were talking about that. My understanding, Professor, is that's still a possibility. The, the the state legislatures could still move ahead with that.
3: Yes, they could conceivably in the sense that they could punish him by, as, as was mooted at the federal level, by holding the impeachment, which which if 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 it, he was convicted would bar him from holding office in the future i suspect the democrats won't go down that road there's no need to he's done within their party so i don't think they have any reason to try to if you like put an extra nail in the in 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 the coffin top. uh... he's he's finished uh, i think what's probably more likely is uh... once uh, out of office i would not be surprised to see criminal charges and again the contrast is is startling between his situation and that of Mr. Trump. Mr. Trump's Justice Department, Attorney General's office, had virtually no interest in looking criminally at what he had done. And you're going to watch, I suspect, that the Attorney General's office of the state of New York, uh, whose, whose leader is a Democrat, it, you're likely going to see criminal proceedings.
0: Well, and the, again, for you know, the the suggestion here that, well, you know, he stepped away so he may avoid the impeachment. Uh, You're right, his legal troubles are in no way finished here. I mean, you talked about the criminal charges as a possibility. i I got to imagine there's going to be some civil actions that are going to be uh, imposed against him as well.
3: Well, I suspect that that will be true as well, Uh, especially, as you know, in the case of of, uh, civil proceedings, the the, the, uh, weight of evidence isn't nearly as strongly uh, as is in the case of uh, criminal matters.
0: And and that could drag on for years too, as we've seen in other situations. So, is is it safe to say then, Professor, that his political capital has expired?
3: Absolutely. Uh, he's 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 done. Uh, politics in the, in the state of New York is dominated by the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party has has uh, rid itself of him, and there, so there's no in, uh, imaginable scenario in which he rises from the ashes.
0: What's interesting about this, uh, you know, this is another chapter, I guess, in how how the mighty have fallen. I mean, a year ago, a year and a half ago, uh, he was being portrayed basically as America's governor. He was he was the guy of all the governors, really, that that stood up to Donald Trump and you know, and uh, talked about COVID nineteen and seemed to have a handle on what was going on. Now, a, a lot of that, of course, has been tarnished since then because we found out some of the data about uh, long term care homes and some of the fudging with numbers, et cetera. But back in those days, uh, he could probably have run for any office he wanted. Wanted to have been successful.
3: Oh no question. I mean, his news conferences on CNN of all places were like must see TV.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, noontime every day. It was you know, it's Andrew Cuomo on CNN, Andrew Cuomo on MSNBC. Uh, you know, peaching yep. right into the wheelhouse of of the people that would have supported him anyway, and he was he was seen as a savior. And it's uh, it's it's a remarkable uh, how things can change in the space of twelve months.
3: Yeah, no, clearly he was an island at that point, an island of sanity amidst the sea of madness.
0: And, and I mean, even if he didn't, I, you know, there's some suggestion he may run for the Democratic nomination for president. I mean, that was never going to happen. But he probably would have been a shoe in to run uh, and, and probably win a fourth term and governor. And that That's never happened before.
3: That's right. No, it, clearly he had, he had a clear path to re-election until uh, his own behavior uh, cut the knees out from under him.
0: fascinating story and uh, as I say hardly the last chapter of this, there's a lot more to come Uh, I want to pivot just while i've got you professor so glad you can be with us here today sure. uh... earlier this week of course on monday the uh, the uh, canadian government opened the u.s. u uh, canada u.s. border uh... to americans for non essential travel and uh, we've seen uh, actually a pretty large influx coming in through niagara falls windsor and places like that for day trips and that's gratifying uh... the u.s. government is not reciprocated and it doesn't seem to give us any impression as to when they're actually going to develop a policy like that uh... what's holding them up
3: well certainly you know uh, border politics and the the toxic mixture of uh, pandemic disinformation and border politics really has tied the hands of the Biden administration. I mean, you have uh, in two of the major southern border states, uh, Texas and Arizona, where you have local Republican parties that uh, fuel a disinformation campaign that somehow the coronavirus is all being brought in over the border and, uh, Who think the solution is to to shut the border, to build a wall? Uh, It it, just—it's relentless, and even though it's nonsense, uh, there isn't that kind of border. uh, The American uh, pandemic is being spread by unvaccinated Americans. Uh, Everybody understands that, except uh, apparently the polling shows about uh, 30, 35 percent of uh, Americans actually think that the virus is being uh, fueled by uh, travelers coming across the border. And you've got two governors, in, well, you've got a governor, one governor, I should say, in Texas, who feeds the fire every day. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, what Biden is, is really stuck, because you, it, it's, if, if you relax the Canadian border and not the American border, I mean the Canadian-American border, but not the American-Mexican border, you have claims, uh, you know, and and, and uh, about whether or not this is reasonable and, and is it fair? And and after all, both of them are partners in our economic union, and you know we depend on each other, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and family unification is really important down at the southern border, just like it is here at the northern border. And and you know, do you really want to get into that? And I just and obviously, the Biden administration has decided, you know, this just is. It's not worth it. Uh, let's let hopefully let things calm down, and he's got other things to worry about down in down in in Texas. I mean, he's he's mulling over legal action because the governor there has actually forbade school board school districts from having students wear masks. So uh, there's so many so many fires you can try to put out at the same time
0: and i i get your point about the, this not just being a priority I'm, I, I, you know I, the 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 mexican influence is certainly part of that and, and the fact that the vaccination rates have leveled off and uh that's a concern especially in some of those southern states and those border states and and your point about you know governor abbott in, in texas and what he's doing there uh vis-a-vis the masking is one thing the other one of course is is an awful lot of the legislation that state legislatures are passing these days uh it's essentially trying to restrict voting for the next federal election and and i know texas is one one of the, the battlegrounds for that right now, too. So I, I would imagine, uh, as you mentioned, if, if the president wants to fight any battles, th- those are the ones he wants to start w- fighting and winning before he gets down to what, uh, what's going to happen at the border.
3: No, absolutely. You know, it, it's 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 unfortunate, uh, but it's it's a necessary you know byproduct of, of the reality that in American politics, presidents, especially, only have so much political capital that they can use to deploy to try to get things they want. And uh, this is a bridge too far in light of his other pressing challenges, like you said, around voting ID and voting laws uh, along mask mandates, stopping the coronavirus pandemic.
0: Yep. And I guess part of the rationalization for that would be that it's not a border that's shut tightly here. I mean, Canadians can't access the border. You just can't drive across or that sort of thing. But, I mean, you want to fly to to New York or something. I mean, that's apparently there are ways you can do these sorts of things. So I I suppose you figure, look, maybe in the passage of time, uh, as the numbers for COVID start to decrease once again, this can just be happening, but it won't be a big deal at that point.
3: No, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's just a, 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 a matter of lesser consequence. I think there's some hope here that the American hesitance on the southern border might get the, Me- the Mexican government to uh, uh, act a little more comprehensively and diligently when it comes to managing the pandemic in Mexico. If the case rising there is very serious.
0: And we're also told the vaccination rate is, is uh, well, frighteningly low in Mexico right now. So I, I understand their concerns about actually opening the border up there. No,
3: absolutely. And, you know, they have the additional problem. Uh, Mexico had initially had some issues around sourcing vaccine. So they they took a fair bit of vaccine out of uh, Russia, the Sputnik Five vaccine in mm-hmm. China, and China, and neither of those have been approved by uh, American health authorities, or by many health authorities, frankly.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the rationales and one of the rules that the uh, the FDA down there has, has, and the CDC, I guess, has been adamant about. If it's not approved by those agencies, uh, you're not getting into the country. It doesn't matter where you're coming from. Oh, absolutely. Professor, always great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for spending some time with us this morning.
3: Oh, you're welcome. Pleasure to speak with you.